0: CHAPTER 44 PART 3 OF THE DECLINE AND FALL OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE VOLUME 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Ringa Among savage nations, the want of letters is imperfectly supplied by the use of visible signs, which awaken attention and perpetuate the remembrance of any public or private transaction. The jurisprudence of the first Romans exhibited the scenes of a pantomime. The words were adapted to the gestures, and the slightest error or neglect in the forms of proceeding was sufficient to annul the substance of the fairest claim. The communion of the marriage life was denoted by the necessary elements of fire and water, and the divorced wife resigned the bunch of keys by the delivery of which she had been invested with the government of the family. The manumission of a son or a slave was performed by turning him round with a gentle blow on the cheek. A work was prohibited by the casting of a stone. Prescription was interrupted by the breaking of a branch. The clinched fist was the symbol of a pledge or deposit. The right hand was the gift of faith and confidence. The indenture of covenants was a broken straw. Weights and scales were introduced into every payment, and the heir who accepted a testament was sometimes obliged to snap his fingers, to cast away his garments, and to leap or dance with real or affected transport. If a citizen pursued any stolen goods into a neighbor's house, he concealed his nakedness with a linen towel, and hid his face with a mask or basin, lest he should encounter the eyes of a virgin or a matron. In a civil action... The plaintiff touched the ear of his witness, seized his reluctant adversary by the neck, and implored, in solemn lamentation, the aid of his fellow citizens. The two competitors grasped each other's hands as if they stood prepared for combat before the tribunal of the praetor. He commanded them to produce the object of the dispute. They went, they returned with measured steps, and a clod of earth was cast at his feet to represent the field for which they contended. This occult science of the words and actions of law was the inheritance of the pontiffs and patricians. Like the Chaldean astrologers, they announced to their clients the days of business and repose. These important trifles were interwoven with the religion of Numa, and after the publication of the Twelve Tables, the Roman people was still enslaved by the ignorance of judicial proceedings. The treachery of some plebeian officers at length revealed the profitable mystery. In a more enlightened age, the legal actions were derided and observed, and the same antiquity which sanctified the practice obliterated the use and meaning of this primitive language. A more liberal art was cultivated, however, by the sage of Rome, who, in a stricter sense, may be considered as the authors of the civil law. The alteration of the idiom and manners of the Romans rendered the style of the Twelve Tables less familiar to each rising generation and the doubtful passages were imperfectly explained by the study of legal antiquarians. To define the ambiguities, to circumscribe the latitude, to apply the principles, to extend the consequences, to reconcile the real or apparent contradictions, was a much nobler and more important task, and the province of legislation was silently invaded by the expounders of ancient statutes. Their subtle interpretations concurred with the equity of the praetor, to reform the tyranny of the darker ages. However strange or intricate the means, it was the aim of artificial jurisprudence to restore the simple dictates of nature and reason, and the skill of private citizens was usefully employed to undermine the public institutions of their country. The revolution of almost 1,000 years, from the Twelve Tables to the reign of Justinian, may be divided into three periods, almost equal in duration, and distinguished from each other by the mode of instruction and the character of the civilians. Pride and ignorance contributed, during the first period, to confine within narrow limits the science of the Roman law. On the public days of market, or assembly, the masters of the art were seen walking in the forum, ready to impart the needful advice to the meanest of their fellow citizens, from whose votes, on a future occasion, they might solicit a grateful return. As their years and honors increased, they seated themselves at home, on a chair or throne, to expect with patient gravity the visits of their clients, who, at the dawn of day, from the town and country, began to thunder at their door. The duties of social life, and the incidents of judicial proceeding, were the ordinary subject of these consultations, and the verbal or written opinion of the jurisconsults was framed according to the rules of prudence and law. The use of their own order and family were permitted to listen. Their children enjoyed the benefit of more private lessons, and the Musian race was long renowned for the hereditary knowledge of the civil law. The second period, the learned and splendid Age of Jurisprudence, may be extended from the birth of Cicero to the reign of Severus Alexander. A system was formed, schools were instituted, books were composed, and both the living and the dead became subservient to the instruction of the student. The tripartite of Elias Pytus, surnamed Catus, or the cunning, was preserved as the oldest work of jurisprudence. Cato the censor derived some additional fame from his legal studies and those of his son. The kindred appellation of Mucius Scyvola was illustrated by three sages of the law. But the perfection of the science was ascribed to Servius Sulpicius, their disciple, and the friend of Tully. And the long succession, which shone with equal luster under the Republic and under the Caesars, is finally closed by the respectable characters of Papinian, of Paul, and of Ulpian Their names, and the various titles of their productions, have been minutely preserved, and the example of Labio may suggest some idea of their diligence and fecundity. That eminent lawyer of the Augustan age divided the year between the city and country, between business and composition, and four hundred books are enumerated as the fruit of his retirement. Of the collection of his rival Capito, the two hundred and fifty-ninth book is expressly quoted, and few teachers could deliver their opinions in less than a century of volumes. In the third period, between the reigns of Alexander and Justinian, the oracles of jurisprudence, were almost mute. The measure of curiosity had been filled. The throne was occupied by tyrants and barbarians, the active spirits were diverted by religious disputes, and the professors of Rome, Constantinople, and Berytus were humbly content to repeat the lessons of their more enlightened predecessors. From the slow advances and rapid decay of these legal studies, it may be inferred, that they require a state of peace and refinement. From the multitude of voluminous civilians who fill the intermediate space, it is evident that such studies may be pursued, and such works may be performed, with a common share of judgment, experience, and industry. The genius of Cicero and Virgil was more sensibly felt, as each revolving age had been found incapable of producing a similar or a second. But the most eminent teachers of the law were assured of leaving disciples equal or superior to themselves in merit and reputation. The jurisprudence which had been grossly adapted to the wants of the first Romans, was polished and improved in the second seventh century of the city by the alliance of Grecian philosophy. The Skyvolas had been taught by use and experience, but Servicius Sulpicius was the first civilian who established his art on a certain general theory. For the discernment of truth and falsehood he applied, as an infallible rule, the log of Aristotle and the Stoics, reduced particular cases to general principles, and diffused over the shapeless mass the light of order and eloquence. Cicero, his contemporary and friend, declined the reputation of a professed lawyer, but the jurisprudence of his country was adorned by his incomparable genius which converts into gold every object that it touches. After the example of Plato, he composed a republic, and for the use of his republic, a treatise of laws, in which he labors to deduce from a celestial origin the wisdom and justice of the Roman constitution. The whole universe, according to his sublime hypothesis, forms one immense commonwealth. Gods and men, who participate of the same essence, are members of the same community. Reason prescribes the law of nature and nations, and all positive institutions, however modified by accident or custom, are drawn from the rule of right which the deity has inscribed on every virtuous mind. From these philosophical mysteries, he mildly excludes the skeptics, who refuse to believe, and the Epicureans, who are unwilling to act. The latter disdain the care of the Republic. He advises them to slumber in their shady gardens but he humbly entreats that the new academy would be silent, since her bold objections would too soon destroy the fair and well-ordered structure of his lofty system. Plato, Aristotle, and Zeno he represents as the only teachers who arm and instruct a citizen for the duties of social life. Of these, the armor of the Stoics was found to be of the firmest temper, and it was chiefly worn, both for use and ornament, in the schools of jurisprudence. From the portico, the Roman civilians learned to live, to reason, and to die. But they imbibed in some degree the prejudices of the sect, the love of paradox, the pertinacious habits of dispute, and a minute attachment to words and verbal distinctions. The superiority of form to matter was introduced to ascertain the right of property, and the equality of crimes is countenanced by an opinion of turbaceous that he who touches the ear touches the whole body, and that he who steals from a heap of corn or a hog's head of wine is guilty of the entire theft. Arms, eloquence, and the study of the civil law promoted a citizen to the honors of the Roman state, and the three professions were sometimes more conspicuous by their union in the same character. In the composition of the edict, a learned praetor gave a sanction and preference to his private sentiments. The opinion of a censor or a council was entertained with respect, and a doubtful interpretation of the laws might be supported by the virtues or triumphs of the civilian. The patrician arts were long protected by the veil of mystery, and in more enlightened times the freedom of inquiry established the general principles of jurisprudence. Subtle and intricate cases were elucidated by the disputes of the forum. Rules axioms, and definitions were admitted as the genuine dictates of reason, and the consent of the legal professors was interwoven into the practice of the tribunals. But these interpreters could neither enact nor execute the laws of the Republic, and the judges might disregard the authority of the Skyvolas themselves, which was often overthrown by the eloquence or sophistry of an ingenious pleader. Augustus and Tiberius were the first to adopt, as a useful engine, the science of the civilians, and their servile labors accommodated the old system to the spirit and views of despotism. Under the fair pretense of securing the dignity of the art, the privilege of subscribing legal and valid opinions was confined to the sages of senatorian or equestrian rank, who had been previously approved by the judgment of the prince. And this monopoly prevailed till Adrian restored the freedom of the profession to every citizen conscious of his abilities and knowledge. The discretion of the praetor was now governed by the lessons of his teachers. The judges were enjoined to obey the comment as well as the text of the law, and the use of codicils was a memorable innovation, which Augustus ratified by the advice of the civilians. The most absolute mandate could only require that the judges should agree with the civilians if the civilians agreed among themselves. But positive institutions are often the result of custom and prejudice, Laws and language are ambiguous and arbitrary. Where reason is incapable of pronouncing, the love of argument is inflamed by the envy of rivals, the vanity of masters, the blind attachment of their disciples. And the Roman jurisprudence was divided by the once famous sects of the Proculians and Sabinians. Two sages of the law, Atius Capito and Antistius Labio, adorned the peace of the Augustan age. The former distinguished by the favor of his sovereign, the latter more illustrious by his contempt of that favor, and his stern, though harmless, opposition to the tyrant of Rome. Their legal studies were influenced by the various colors of their temper and principles. Labio was attached to the form of the old republic. His rival embraced the more profitable substance of the rising monarchy, but the disposition of a courtier is tame and submissive, and Capito seldom presumed to deviate from the sentiments, or at least from the words, of his predecessors, while the bold republican pursued his independent ideas without fear of paradox or innovations. The freedom of Lebio was enslaved, however, by the rigor of his own conclusions, and he decided, according to the letter of the law, the same questions which his indulgent competitor resolved with a latitude of equity more suitable to the common sense and feelings of mankind. If a fair exchange had been substituted to the payment of money, Capito still considered the transaction as a legal sale, and he consulted nature for the age of puberty, without confining his definition to the precise period of twelve or fourteen years. This opposition of sentiments was propagated in the writings and lessons of the two founders, the schools of Capito and Le maintained their inveterate conflict from the age of Augustus to that of Adrian, and the two sects derived their appellations from Sabinus and Proculus, their most celebrated teachers. The names of Cassians and Pegasians were likewise applied to the same parties, but by a strange reverse, the popular cause was at the hands of Pegasus, a timid slave of Domitian, while the favorite of the Caesars was represented by Cassius who gloried in his descent from the patriot assassin. By the perpetual edict, the controversies of the sects were in a great measure determined. For that important work, the Emperor Adrian preferred the chief of the Sabinians. The friends of monarchy prevailed. But the moderation of Salvius Julian insensibly reconciled the victors and the vanquished. Like the contemporary philosophers, the lawyers of the age of the Antonines disclaimed the authority of a master, and adopted from every system the most probable doctrines. But their writings would have been less voluminous, had their choice been more unanimous. The conscience of the judge was perplexed by the number and weight of discordant testimonies, and every sentence that his passion or interest might pronounce was justified by the sanction of some venerable name. An indulgent edict of the younger Theodosius excused him from the labor of comparing and weighing their arguments. Five civilians, Caius, Papinian, Paul, Ulpian, and Modestinus, were established as the oracles of jurisprudence. A majority was decisive, but if their opinions were equally divided, a casting vote was ascribed to the superior wisdom of Papinian. End of chapter forty four, part three, recording by Adam Ringa.